You're listening to Devils and Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priests. Warning. This podcast deals with incidents of child sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 5, Father X, Part 1. For the next four episodes, we're going to take a very close look at the life and crimes of the man I'm calling Father X, the worst of the five credibly accused clergymen who served at St. Matthew's during my childhood. When I was a teenager, Father X and I were pals. Father X also turned out to be a serial molester who has admitted to preying on altar boys during the 1970s and 80s. In 1993, he was forced to leave the priesthood and promptly disappeared. With financial help from the church, he moved to a nearby state to pursue a civilian career as a drug and alcohol counselor. Never punished or prosecuted, or required to register with any sex offender database, nobody in his new community knew that Father X was a child-molesting priest. Back around the time he disappeared, my parents had told me that Father X was rumored to have run away with a married woman from the Our Lady of Hope parish. Turns out that gossip wasn't true, but since the bishop never discussed priestly personnel issues, the lay people of the parishes where Father X served had no idea what really happened. A decade passed. Then, in 2003, the Diocese of Springfield officially added Father X's name to the so-called credibly accused list without providing details about his crimes. He was officially branded evil, but still no one knew why. Over the next decade and a half, I occasionally thought about Father X, always wondering what sins had forced him out of the ministry. Then, in January 2017, I stumbled across a brief mention of Father X in a wire service story about the death of another child-molesting priest from Springfield. That led me to start researching, and I quickly discovered that Father X was a sociopathic serial molester. Angered by that revelation, I tracked him down and drove 250 miles to his current residence. On a cold winter's night in 2017, I knocked on his door and surprised him with a bottle of a hundred-proof bourbon. I got him drunk enough to confess his sins. Thanks to a hidden tape recorder, you're going to hear his excuses in his own voice. But first, Let's get to know this son of a bitch. 
When the telephone rang in the early hours of Easter Sunday, 1976, Lloyd Stanley groaned. Middle-of-the-night phone calls were never good news. He and his wife Margaret learned that truth by raising seven kids. Seven good kids, for sure. All were very nice and well-behaved. But even good kids sometimes find themselves in trouble. Hello? Mr. Stanley? A female voice asked. Yeah. I'm sorry to wake you, sir. I'm calling from Mercy Hospital Emergency Room. Your son Joseph has been in a car accident. Joe? Lloyd was instantly awake. His 24-year-old son was the second oldest kid in the family. Smart, sensible, generous. The doctors here at Mercy Hospital really want you to come in and... The voice on the phone paused. We'll be there in 15 minutes. Margaret was staring at Lloyd. She could tell something was terribly wrong. And that's all we know, David Stanley told his friend, the parish priest, Father X, before the start of the nine o'clock Easter Mass at Our Lady of Sacred Heart Church, also known as Olsh, in Springfield's Pine Point neighborhood. Mom and Dad are still at the hospital. They, they just want me to tell you it's pretty serious. They ask that you pray for Joe. We'll all pray for Joe and your family and for you, Father X said, wrapping his arms around the 14-year-old. Don't hesitate to call if there's anything I can do to help. Thank you, Father, David said. I will. He released the boy from his embrace. The priest knew David extremely well. He was one of Olsha's best altar boys, a real devout kid with dreams of becoming a priest. Despite a veritable chorus of prayers, there was no miracle or divine intervention. The Stanley family was in a state of shock. Unconscious and on life support since arriving at the hospital, the injuries to his brain and his heart were severe enough to be fatal. Four days after the accident, he was dead. I asked my parents if I could ask you, David said to Father X. He'd ridden his bike over to the old rectory to speak to the priest. So, Father, would you say Joe's funeral mass? Of course. Father X answered, without a doubt, it would be an honor. Joe was a fine young man. But my question is, how are you doing? David didn't answer. Instead, the boy began to cry. Father X hugged him as the tears turned into sobs. There, there, the priest murmured. I know it's tough to understand, but the Lord works in mysterious ways. Lloyd, how are you doing? Father X said into the phone. It was the second week of June, a couple of months after Joe's burial, and a month since the priest had been transferred from Olsh to the other end of Springfield to assist with the priestly duties at the Our Lady of Hope Parish. It was the first time he'd spoken to the family since the funeral. And how is Margaret? Father X listened politely, but the grieving parents weren't the real reason for his call. How's my friend David doing? I miss that kid. Such a fine lad. Is he home? I'd love to speak to him. 
You know, Lloyd, I've been thinking, Father Axe said into the phone a week later, I'm concerned about David. Our last conversation keeps coming to mind. I think he's depressed about Joe's death, and I believe some counseling might be beneficial. We've been worried about all the children, Lloyd said slowly. But of course, David is the baby. Could you tell Margaret what you just told me? Lloyd handed the telephone to his wife. Hello, Father. My dear Margaret, how are you? Sad, she sniffled, heartbroken. I am praying for you and the family every day, the priest said. Listen, like I was telling Lloyd, since my conversation with David last week, I've been worried he's showing signs of serious depression. I could provide the necessary grief counseling. It's part of our training as priests. He paused for a second. Since he and I have been friends for so long, I think we can make some real progress in a short amount of time. I could probably do the counseling over the 4th of July weekend. Perhaps David could spend an overnight at the rectory here at Our Lady of Hope. I don't know why he's not back yet, Lloyd said, glancing at the parlor clock. He knew you were coming to pick him up, but when he and Benny O'Brien are playing ball, sometimes they lose track of time. Margaret, this coffee is delightful. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Father. Margaret was surprised when he showed up early, wearing civilian clothes. Sign of the time, she thought. A lifelong Catholic, seeing a priest out of uniform was still a little strange. So, Father, what is your plan? I thought tonight we'd go out to dinner and then see a movie. Oh, Margaret paused, confused. She'd meant his plan to help David with his depression and grief. Does the lad have a favorite? I mean, besides McDonald's. Early that Sunday morning, before 9 a.m., David came running through the kitchen, surprising his mother. She thought he'd be spending the entire day with Father Axe. He sprinted upstairs to his room before she could even question him. When he came back down, he was wearing new shorts and a t-shirt. What are you doing home so early, and where are you going? I gotta get over to Benny's, David said, grabbing a couple apples from the basket on the table. I'm already late. How was your visit with father? Margaret asked David that night. She hadn't seen her son all day, and now, sitting at the dinner table, he appeared distracted, far away. He wasn't eating which itself was strange. He also seemed sullen, sad. Something was wrong. David didn't respond. He just stared down at his food in silence. Honey, what's the matter? The boy sniffled, then let out a short moan. David, are you okay? Lloyd asked. Sniffles and moans were unusual. Hey, buddy, he said, his voice softer. How are you doing? David looked up. First at his dad, then his mom, then back to his dad. And then he let go and started sobbing, then weeping and wailing. Margaret got up and wrapped her arms around her son. Lloyd was alarmed. Though he was the youngest, David was an especially tough kid. he just finished his freshman year at Cathedral High School, where he played multiple sports, and his father knew he could handle himself on the field, and off. Son, did something happen last night? Lloyd said. You can tell us. It'll be okay. The tears slowly tapered off, but David kept his head down. 
We went to the Jaycocks for dinner, he said, sniffling. Then the movies, and when we got back to the rectory, nobody else was there, and he brought me upstairs to a bedroom, and then... His voice trailed off. He took a sip of water. His parents stayed quiet, not wanting to rush him, and when David began talking again, they couldn't believe his words. Slowly, methodically, and graphically, the 14-year-old boy explained how the priest had forced him onto the bed and climbed on top of him, pinning him to the mattress, and how Father X reached into the boy's underwear and touched and fondled his private parts. David told him to stop. He demanded that he stop. He begged him to stop, but Father X wouldn't stop. Then the priest stood up and removed his own underwear. He was, he was going to rape me, the boy said, fresh tears flowing from his eyes. I got up and ran into the bathroom, and I locked the door behind me, and I stayed in there for the whole night. I was so scared. For several moments, his parents sat in shocked silence, absorbing the details more horrid, depraved, and perverted than anything they could have imagined. A priest, a holy man, a direct representative of God, sexually molesting and attempting to rape their young son. I'll kill him! Lloyd bellowed as he jumped up from his chair. He pounded his fist on the table. I'll murder that dirty son of a bitch. He turned to his wife. She sat there, crying, her body pulsing with each sob, cheeks soaked with tears, eyes filled with sorrow and pain. They'd all suffered so much already. And now this... Later, after David went to bed, they sat silently, husband and wife in the parlor, still trying to comprehend what happened. Lloyd's anger had slightly receded, enough to let some logic seep in. He couldn't kill the priest without ending up in prison, and that wouldn't work. His family needed him. We have to tell the bishop, Margaret declared, breaking the silence. The bishop has to know. This priest may assault other boys. She stood and turned to her husband. I will write a letter tonight. I will tell the bishop what happened to our son, and I will request a meeting with him to discuss what can be done to this monster. I'll be there the whole time, Lloyd promised his son. I'll make sure the bishop listens. It was the day after Margaret mailed the letter. She'd gotten a call from the diocese headquarters that morning. Okay, David said. He was trying to summon the courage to retell the story of the assault. Dad, I wonder if Benny O'Brien should come with us. Why? Well, I told him a, a little bit of what happened, and he told me that Father grabbed him a bunch of times after Mass and, and, and touched his privates. Sitting in the office of Bishop Joseph McGuire, Benny and David rushed through their stories of Father X's molestation and attempted rape, intimidated by the presence of the bishop, too embarrassed to describe Father X's actions in detail. 
When David finished speaking, the room was silent for a second. Then the bishop spoke. Many times there is fooling around done in jest, like the snapping of towels in the locker room after a sporting event. Sounds like horseplay to me, you know, harmless. The bishop concluded with a nod, a declaration of judgment delivered. The two boys didn't dare respond, but Lloyd wasn't intimidated by the bishop's clerical privilege. This wasn't about church hierarchy. It was about right and wrong. He was glad Margaret had decided to stay home. She was already so upset by the situation, and she didn't need to hear Bishop McGuire's bullshit. Excuse me, Bishop, Lloyd said. It's obvious you're not taking the complaint seriously. This wasn't horseplay. I demand that you bring Father X here to meet with me and the boys. Let them confront him with the facts. Let's see what his response is. I've already spoken with Father X, the bishop interjected, and he doesn't want to have a meeting with you and the boys. Oh, really? Lloyd frowned. Sounds like a guilty conscience. Again, my dear Mr. Stanley, I feel this whole situation is being... David, Lloyd said, interrupting the bishop. I want you to tell the bishop exactly what happened on Saturday night in the bedroom at Our Lady of Hope. Tell him every single detail you told mom and me at dinner. Everything. The bishop was taken aback. The faithful never interrupted him. But when David spoke again, he listened. Lloyd watched the bishop's expression change while David recounted, in graphic detail, what Father X did to him and then tried to do to him. Tears streamed down the boy's cheeks as he described how he locked himself in the bathroom and spent a terrified night, scared, so scared, finally crying himself into fitful sleep, knowing the monster was lurking on the other side of the door, the only way out. When David was done, the bishop was contrite. He turned to Lloyd. I will take care of this, the bishop said. There will be no need for a face-to-face -face meeting. Can you make it so he doesn't supervise any more altar boy programs? David asked. I promise you this, the bishop said, looking him in the eye. I will suspend his duties as a priest. I will see that he attends counseling and that his future duties will be restricted so he will not supervise any children. The bishop paused for a final time, then added, and I will personally monitor his behavior. And, and then he said he would personally monitor his behavior, Lloyd said. He and David were giving Margaret the recap. But no meeting with the son of a bitch. Lloyd, she said. Margaret would have also liked to swear, but she didn't cuss. She was a good Catholic woman. I guess we have to take the bishop at his word, she said. He said he'll take care of it, right? Well, we trust in the Lord and the bishop. <laughs> Lloyd wasn't convinced. We'll see, he said. But there's nothing more he could do. No alternative other than to wait and watch. I propose we close the topic to future discussion, Margaret said, and rely on the bishop's promises. Lloyd and David nodded in agreement. In the 1970s, good Catholics didn't talk about sex, and they certainly didn't discuss priests forcing sex upon children.
Father X was actually happy with his transfer out of Our Lady of Hope. Felt more like a reward than a punishment. He hated the job, and he especially hated the pastor, Father Jackie Powers, a doddering old fool, Father X believed, who should have been retired years before. Luckily for Father X, during his short stay at Our Lady of Hope, he'd had the foresight to enroll in the hospital chaplaincy program offered by Mercy Hospital, which he'd done mostly to get a couple days a week away from the parish and the evil eye of Jackie Powers. So he was qualified for the chaplaincy at a small Catholic hospital near Greenfield, which was a much sweeter gig. The entire upstairs of a bungalow was provided as his personal housing, and the hospital only had a hundred patients, so his workload was quite minimal. Plus, he had weekends off, except on the rare occasions he needed to administer last rites to some poor dying soul. Contrary to the bishop's promises to the Stanley family, the priest's duties were not restricted, and he never underwent counseling. Furthermore, the bishop never said another word to Father X about the incidents with David or Benny, nor did he monitor the priest's behavior. So the bishop didn't know that Father X spent lots of time alone with altar boys at several parishes around Greenfield. Since the priest had an easy schedule, he often filled in for brother priests when they needed a day off or two. Saying Mass at these churches was fun for Father X. He could preach and pontificate without dealing with the mundane and tiresome chores of running a parish. Plus, he got to hang out with altar boys. The extra money was much appreciated. At 50 bucks per Mass, Father X cleared a couple hundred dollars on a good weekend. That was in addition to his weekly salary, free food, housing, and health care. This allowed him to sock away lots of cash in the bank, which was handy, because the priest had his eyes on a brand new Buick Park Avenue. David wasn't so lucky. His second year at Cathedral High was a disaster. A dramatic change from the year before. He drank, smoked, fought, and stole. Over his parents' objections, he stopped attending Mass. He skipped classes and entire days of school. Sullen and rude, he was a jerk to everyone. Teachers, siblings, random people on the street. Lloyd and Margaret tried all the tricks they'd used on their other six kids. Bribes and punishments rewards and threats. Nothing worked. David turned into a stranger, alienating everyone around him, all except his brother Stephen, who never gave up on David. He believed his little brother could change back into the sweet young fella with priestly ambitions. The family's denial ran deep. Nobody made the connection between the trauma of David's assault and his bad behavior. True to their vow, the assault by Father X and the bishop's response to it were never discussed. Then, Patty, the lone daughter in the family, came home from her new job at the Catholic hospital near Greenfield, bearing shocking news. She'd seen Father X gallivanting across the hospital campus between patient visits. Then she learned he'd been saying Mass and distributing communion to the bedridden, blessing men, women, 
Even children and babies were visiting the ill. Father X was always available to administer last rites and all the other sacraments. This was hardly what the bishop had promised. Margaret spent so many nights tossing and turning in bed, unable to sleep, unable to figure out what was wrong, where she went wrong, plagued by sorrow and anger. She was a mess. Between Joe's death and David's distance, it was like she lost two sons, one right after the other. Her grief and guilt were compounded by her bitter hatred for Father X. She didn't dare express such blasphemous hatred aloud, though. She still believed in her church, or at least the ideals of the church. She still had faith in her Lord, Jesus Christ, and the real saints and angels in heaven above, and the Virgin Mary, of course. The men of the church, not so much. The Stanleys never heard from Bishop McGuire again. No follow-up or apology, no offer of counseling or additional spiritual guidance. Margaret tried to bury her ire and pray away her outrage, but she could no longer receive the sacrament of confession, never again. That meant she was risking damnation, but she was physically and mentally unable to enter the confessional. What if the confessor, waiting on the other side, was one of those monsters hiding behind a Roman collar. The very idea made her sick to her stomach, unable to achieve what's called reconciliation. She carried her unforgiven sins as yet another burden, another reason to worry and fear. Heaven forbid she died before receiving absolution from a priest, because then her unconfessed sins would condemn her to eternity in the flaming pits of hell. That little no-good goddamn punk, Lloyd said to himself, gripping his steering wheel tight as he drove out of the parking lot. Once again, he'd been called away from work, forced to leave a business meeting to deal with David. Apparently, Stephen, the good son, had finally snapped After discovering his mother crying over his little brother's daily disrespect, he lost it and kicked David's ass. Lloyd was at his wit's end. David was killing his mother with a thousand cuts. Every day, it seemed, Margaret was upset by his bad behavior. David ignored curfews. Money, booze, cigarettes, and other valuables had to be locked up to prevent the boy from stealing Who knew what kind of crimes he committed while away from the house? Lloyd was also tired and embarrassed by the steady stream of phone calls from the nuns at Cathedral High. He'd sat in many meetings to hear their complaints and ultimatums. David was driving the Sisters of St. Joseph crazy with his drunkenness and hell-raising. He'd already been suspended multiple times. The next punishment was expulsion, a weapon rarely used by nuns who prided themselves on breaking or reforming troublemakers. Maybe it was time for some tough love. David was only 17, but Lloyd was seriously considering throwing the kid out of the house. Let him learn the hard way. 
After four years at the hospital chaplaincy job, Father X was terribly bored. The patients all had the same old complaints. They were sick and tired of the pain, blah, blah, blah. He'd heard through the diocesan grapevine that many pastoral positions were opening up over the coming year. All the ancient priests were kicking the bucket or retiring. The growing shortage of new clerics, especially in western Massachusetts, provided lots of opportunities for middle-aged holy men. Father X was so ready for a change, becoming the shepherd at a small parish, delivering homilies of wisdom and wit would be a better use of his talents than dealing with near-dead hospital patients. He could have a positive impact on a parish flock, especially one with a parochial school. He'd always want to run a school. That sort of job would be so much more meaningful than the hospital where he robotically counseled the troubled, the sad, and the elderly. With the large number of diocesan job openings, he was practically guaranteed a sweet assignment, and he planned to arrive in style. He'd finally saved enough money to buy a brand new Buick Park Avenue with cash. Margaret and Lloyd walked into the room at Mercy Hospital in Springfield and saw David hooked up to various machines and monitors. Wires everywhere. Lloyd began to cry. He almost never cried and certainly never shed a tear in front of his sons. But here he was, weeping and gently holding David's hand, carefully avoiding the IV tube. He could feel his son's pulse faintly. The bottle of pills David swallowed and washed down with a jug of wine had been pumped from his stomach. A suicide attempt had failed. David suddenly opened his eyes. That's when it happened, the reconciliation of parents and the prodigal son. As Lloyd said in a sworn affidavit a dozen years later, the worst was over. A new beginning was born in that hospital room. I had lost a son, Lloyd wrote, and we were very fortunate to have him back. For Margaret, the suicide attempt was the end of what she called, quote, a terrible chapter in our family's history that I never tried to remember. For the next 12 years, she and Lloyd continued to believe they had failed in raising David. Both were plagued by guilt and shame. They blamed themselves for their son's struggle. In the fall of 1981, Father X drove his Park Avenue into the parking lot of St. Stephen's Church, located in a bucolic small town lined with quaint 18th-century houses. St. Stephen's was Father X's new domain, and he instantly loved it. Unfortunately for him, there wasn't a parish school, but if he did well at St. Stephen's, he knew a parish with a school would probably be his next assignment. The first task he took on was to renovate the rectory. The joint was in desperate need of a facelift, 
Every room got a couple coats of paint or a new layer of wallpaper, jobs he happened to enjoy doing. Thanks to his free labor, there was enough money left in the budget to lay some new carpet and update the kitchen with modern appliances. He loved the clean look and feel of his combination home and pastoral meeting place. Father X hosted many meetings. Over the previous decade, the parishioners of St. Stephen's had raised a lot of money to build a parish center. They dreamed of a big building, one large enough to hold bingo games and church suppers, and with a gymnasium so that the parish kids could play basketball in the CYO League. The previous two pastors of St. Stephen's didn't want the headache of such a huge project. They were too old, both of them claimed, for such a construction challenge. Father X, on the other hand, at age 40, was willing and able to lead the venture, especially since the parish had a couple million bucks in the bank. So the priest dove in, which mostly entailed hosting planning meetings and writing checks to contractors. Pastors aren't supposed to be so focused on the material world, but that was the reality of running a modern parish. And despite the demands of the construction project, Father X was still able to fulfill his ecclesiastical duties. Those duties included training a small army of altar boys to assist in his theatrical celebration of the Mass. Ten-year-old Jack Ballard climbed the steps and pulled open the front door of the St. Stephen Rectory. He did this five days a week as newspaper boy for the local daily. Father X was the final customer on his route. It was a fun way to end the workday. He and the priest were already pals since Jack was also an altar boy. But now they had some one-on-one -on -one time, playing games, laughing, joking around. It felt pretty cool being friends with a priest because he worshipped priests. He was an eager student of catechism and looked forward to his CCD classes every Monday after school. He prayed the rosary regularly, and he went to confession on a weekly basis, because that's what his beloved grandmother taught him to do. His mom's mom was super religious, and Jack loved her so much. Her most prized possession, a framed portrait of the Pope, now hung on the wall at his house. She went to Mass every day without fail, and often, when he was little, she'd bring him along. She taught Jack early about the importance of respecting, revering, and most importantly, obeying priests. Priests were special people, she'd explained many times. God's representative on earth, priests were the voice of God to human beings. And confessing sins to a priest was the lone path to avoiding eternal damnation. That's why the year before, when his grandmother got sick, she called for a priest more often than a doctor. When she died, young Jack was devastated. But at least she went straight to heaven, and Jack truly believed they'd be together there again when he died. He'd hear her laugh again. He'd see her wide smile and feel her tight hugs for eternity. For Jack, that was reason enough to follow the rules of being a good Catholic. 
His Graham would have been proud of him serving as an altar boy, and Jack was honored to help Father X celebrate Mass. He liked to think his grandmother was watching from heaven above, happy to see his dedication to the church and his devotion to the priest. Serving as an altar boy was the highlight of Jack's life. Some classmates made fun of him at school, bullied him, really. At church, he didn't have to deal with any of that crap. He was appreciated and even admired, especially by Father X. The priest made him feel special. Jack was allowed to leave class once or twice a week to work funerals, and Father X usually chose him to serve at Saturday morning weddings, which was especially awesome since the best man always gave the altar boys a cash tip. Now, thanks to his newspaper job, he hung out with his holy friend almost every day. It was awesome. They played Scrabble, sometimes cards, or just talked and goofed around. Jack hustled through his route to spend as much time as possible with the priest. Extra, extra, read all about it, Jack called out as he walked through the foyer and into the main hallway of the rectory, just like he always did. But this time was different. Suddenly, Father X appeared beside him. The priest wrapped his arms around Jack, engulfing him in a tight hug. That wasn't unusual. Then the priest tried to kiss Jack on the mouth. Father X easily wrestled him to the floor and, pinning him down, forcibly kissed the boy again. Then the priest began to tickle Jack. Then he put his hands down Jack's pants and fondled the boy's privates, then his buttocks. Jack felt very strange and confused. And just like that, it was over. Father X was back on his feet. So was Jack, newspaper still in hand. Of course, you better not tell anyone about this, the priest said nonchalantly. It'll be our little secret. Besides, no one would believe you anyway. He took the newspaper and ushered the boy towards the front door. Out on the sidewalk, Jack was in a daze, in shock. He wasn't hurt physically, and the priest was right. No way to explain what Father X did. Besides, his grandma always said that priests were special and must be obeyed. Is this what she meant? Extra, extra, read all about it, Jack called out, closing the front door and walking through the foyer of the rectory, just like he'd been doing for almost three years now. Father X didn't molest him every time he delivered the paper, just once or twice during the week, and sometimes on weekends, in the church, after Mass, and occasionally following a weekday funeral or a holy day of obligation. The molestation was always accompanied by insufferable tickling and kisses, and followed by a veiled threat not to tell. This particular summer afternoon was collection day for his paper route. While Jack waited for the priest to get his checkbook, he started fiddling with the thermostat on the hallway wall, triggering the furnace to turn on, all the way to the right, 
then back to the left, off, then back to the right, on, then back to the left. Don't do that, Father X said, approaching Jack. Don't touch that. Jack ignored the priest. On, off, on, off. Don't touch that. You heard me. The priest's tone was deeper, which meant, Jack knew, Father X was about to turn into a real jerk, probably going to start calling Jack Knucklehead again. The priest knew that nickname bothered the boy. The week before, Father X had presented Jack with a gift, a baseball cap with knuckles printed on it, for a knucklehead, and Jack had gotten very upset. The priest's teasing hurt more than the bullies at school, because his was the voice of God. Jack flipped the switch again, on, off, on, off. Father X grabbed him by the neck. He violently pulled the boy away from the thermostat and threw him against the opposite wall. Then he grabbed Jack by the wrist, twisting his arm behind his back. I told you to stop, Father X snarled, dragging the boy across the hallway and through the foyer. The priest pulled the front door open and pushed the boy into the bright sunlight. Get the fuck out of here. An older woman was standing on the sidewalk, about ten feet from the front steps. She was a parishioner Jack knew by sight, but not name. She obviously witnessed the end of the encounter. Without a word, she spun around and hurried away. Jack was terrified. Father X had his moody spells and mean words before, but he'd never acted so violently. The following day, Jack returned to the rectory, and Father X wrote a check for his newspaper subscription. The priest joked and laughed like nothing happened. Didn't even mention the thermostat. I'm glad to see you have an interest in Our Lady of Hope, Bishop Joseph McGuire said into the telephone receiver. But unfortunately, that position is going to Father Lawson. Father X was crestfallen. He'd really hoped to be transferred to Our Lady of Hope. But I do have a place for you, the bishop continued, and it too has a school, St. Matthew's in Indian Orchard. Hmm, Father X knew St. Matthew's in the orchard, by reputation mostly as run-down, working-class, and poor, the polar opposite of St. Stephen's. He'd done all he could do at St. Stephen's, especially since the parishioners had no desire to build a school. The new parish center and the renovated rectory were old feathers in his cap. After five years, it was time to move on from St. Stephen's. Hmm, Indian Orchard, he said. A good place for you to gain some experience, the bishop said. Priests rarely refuse an offer from the bishop, because the bishop is more than just a boss. He's the protector and leader of the legions of men of the cloth who vow allegiance and devotion to him. In return, the bishop promises to provide for the humble priests until death, or as long as they obey orders. I'd be honored, Father X said. When do I start? Father X has zero experience in school administration. His college degree was in philosophy. That didn't matter, though. He was a priest, and that was good enough for the Catholic education system. Father X's interest in running a school was not wholly motivated by his status as a serial sexual predator. 
Vanity played a role, too. He had fond memories of a beloved priest visiting his school and being mobbed like a rock star, surrounded by kids eager for the holy man's attention. The position is called Master of Ceremonies, Father X said to me. It was a Saturday in the fall of 1985, after the 5.30 Mass. And it's not just a glorified altar boy, he said, grinning widely, more like an assistant to the priest celebrating the liturgy. I'll get into my personal relationship with Father X in greater detail during the next episode. For now, understand that I was still pretending to be a good Catholic boy. I attended Cathedral High and volunteered at the Loaves and Fishes Soup Kitchen. During the same period, despite my devout facade, I was perpetually in trouble with my parents. Bad grades, lousy attitude. By the time Father X arrived on the scene, my parents had banned me from all extracurricular activities except my job at McDonald's and church. Once or twice a month, I served as lector at St. Matthew's for the sparsely attended Saturday evening late mass, where I convincingly read the selected chapter and verse, serving as a biblical warm-up act for Father X's gospel and homily show. Looking back 33 years later, it's hard to believe that was my life. For some unknown and ungodly reason, I agreed to become a master of ceremonies, and in the coming months, I became pals with the friendly Father X. Father X's first big project was the renovation of his own living quarters, the rectory. The one at St. Matthew's was a nicotine-stained dump, reeking of desperation and neglect. To Father X's sensitive nose, stunk of old socks and soiled pants. Every wall and ceiling was crackled or peeling paint. Every carpet and rug was worn and tattered. He repainted the whole rectory, which was quite the task. The place was spacious, with four upstairs bedrooms and a living room, plus a kitchen, dining room, pastor's office, parlor, and meeting room on the first floor. Father X embraced this type of labor. His second major undertaking was getting rid of the freeloading Father Tom Misty, a teacher at Cathedral High living at St. Matthew's, not paying a dime for room or board. One night after dinner, Father Misty had the gall to inform Father X that, due to some college classes the younger priest was taking, his availability for masses, confessions, and other priestly chores would be greatly reduced. The next day, Father X went downtown to the chancellor's office where an old friend of his, Father Harrington, ran the priestly assignment desk. The bishop doled out the assignments, but Father Harrington had influence behind the scenes. A couple of days later, Father Misty got his new orders. He had been transferred from St. Matthew's to Holy Family downtown. Now, Father X had the whole rectory to himself. He added finishing touches to the upstairs living quarters, a comfortable and stylish couch and love seat combo. The color scheme was tasteful, elegant almost, and he had a large screen TV, plus both VHS and video disc players a decent stereo and speakers, a well-stocked bar. The only object that seemed slightly out of place was his large grandfather clock. It was relatively new, 
bought the year prior from a Vermont furniture company. At first, Father X regretted the purchase because the gongs and chimes were so damn loud, but he'd paid good money for the thing, so he had to keep it or take a loss, and eventually he grew accustomed to hearing the cacophonous chimes every 15 minutes. Would you like another cigarette? Father X asked Jack, who was sitting with the priest on the couch upstairs at the St. Matthew's Rectory. It was after dinner, and both were clad in pajamas, halfway through watching gremlins on video discs. Yeah, Jack said, reaching for the lighter on the table. Give me one. Jack's parents had been thrilled to get Father X's call the previous weekend. This Saturday, they drove 50 miles south and delivered their now 14-year-old son to the St. Matthew's Rectory for a sleepover. It was an honor, his parents felt, that Father X showed such an interest in their boy, a true friend to Jack. The priest was a good role model, they thought. Jack lit the smoke. Then Father X reached into the boy's pajama bottoms. Just like old times. Right, Father X asked Jack. Jack didn't say a word, just took another long drag on the cigarette. Suddenly, I'm really tired, Jack said, yawning. Where am I sleeping? He yawned again. He took a final puff and stubbed out the cigarette in the overfilled ashtray. Then Jack stood up breaking free of the priest's evil fingers. Down the hall in the master bedroom, Jack climbed under the blanket and sheet. He wasn't sleepy, of course, just trying to ward off any further attention from the priest. And he needed to think of another tactic, fast. The adjacent bathroom door opened and out stepped Father X, completely naked. Jack was shocked. During all the previous incidents of molestation, Father X had been fully clothed. This time, the naked holy man climbed into the bed. He grabbed Jack by the shoulders, pinning the boy down, and began to commit crimes, punishable with a long time behind bars, if priests were subjected to any sort of earthly justice. I have to go to the bathroom, or I'm going to wet the bed. I have to go to the bathroom. The priest let go, and Jack jumped up, dashing for the safety of the master bathroom. He made it and locked the door behind him. Then, like in a movie, Jack grabbed a chair and wedged it under the doorknob. That way, he figured, the priest wouldn't be able to get in even if he had a key. For the next couple of minutes, the rectory was dead quiet. The chimes of the grandfather clock broke the silence. Jack, are you all right? Father X called out from the bedroom when the clanging finally ceased. Leave me alone, Jack. I said leave me alone. And that was that. Neither spoke another word that night. The priest dozed off. Not Jack, though. Fear in that damn clock kept him awake in the bathroom until dawn. And at some point during that interminable night, his terror turned into anger. Father X was a devil, he finally decided, not a holy man of God. Father X did not deserve to be obeyed. He was not worthy of the unconditional respect 
his grandmother told him that all priests must be given, and Jack vowed and prayed he'd never see Father X again. Father X stayed at St. Matthew's for another three years until 1989. He loved the parishioners, he would always say, but the church was a headache. Lots of structural problems, a leaky roof, an aging furnace and outdated electrical wiring, also no plumbing or bathroom. Plus, the church just smelled bad to him, and running the parochial school wasn't as fun or glamorous as he thought it would be, though he enjoyed hanging around at lunchtime when the kids had time to mingle and hug him. The late 1980s were tough for parish schools, but Father X, surprisingly, fared better than most of his colleagues. It had been a struggle, but he'd convinced parents to start paying their annual tuition bills, many of which had been in arrears for years before his arrival. St. Matthew's was no longer in dire financial straits. The diocesan gossips announced the news. Father Lawson was retiring early. Health reasons. Father X figured this was his ticket out of the working-class slums of the orchard. His chances were good. Bishop McGuire had even said so, impressed by Father X's ability to keep St. Matthew's solvent. Perhaps he could work the same magic at Our Lady of Hope. Our Lady of Hope was a beautiful church, a cathedral practically, and had a much classier demographic of parishioners made St. Matthew's look even shabbier by comparison. Almost 15 years had passed since Father X left the parish under a cloud of unspoken suspicion. Finally, his triumphant return, this time as pastor and savior of the school. Two years later, in June 1992, David Stanley was sitting on the couch in his Washington, D.C. apartment watching the evening news. Rollicking footage of reporters chasing Father Richard Levine as he fled the courthouse in Newburyport. David was now 31 years old. It had been 16 years since Father X tried to rape him under the pretense of offering grief counseling in the wake of his beloved brother's death. Once in a great while, David would recall the horrible night he spent huddled on the bathroom floor of the Our Lady of Hope rectory, terrified by the evil priest on the other side of the door. There were also occasions when he recalled his suicide attempt. Whenever those memories arose, he tried to bury them ASAP. He desperately wanted to forget the priest's crimes and the bishop's empty promises. His mom had only recently started attending Sunday Mass again, but still avoided the confessional, and his dad refused to enter a church again for any reason. David only attended church for weddings and funerals, and as his fiancée could attest, those ceremonies always made him cry. She just didn't know the real reasons why. Watching the news report, David tried to imagine the suffering experienced by other children who fell prey to serial molesters like Father Levine. It was way too sad to fathom. 
But David was a man of action and a man of hope. Maybe with his prodding, the diocese in Springfield would finally try to right the wrongs committed by sexual predators who felt emboldened and protected by the Roman collar. At the time, David had just completed law school. Soon, he'd be a lawyer specializing in child abuse cases. An amazing transformation from the high school delinquent, estranged from all who loved him, and then, thankfully, reunited with his mom and dad. David would call his parents and tell them his plan. Then he'd make some inquiries and find out Father X's whereabouts. Then he'd dial the bishop's office and request to speak with the diocesan higher-up. He'd tell the whole sordid tale and demand Father X be removed from the ministry. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Thanks to Chris Busby of MainerNews.com and Brian Fitzgerald for editorial assistance. Thanks to Dave Gutter for the theme song. Thanks to my sweet wife, Sweetgrass, for the musical interludes. And thank you for listening. Be sure to visit devilsanddirtbags.com for show notes, top-secret memos, and to learn about my books, my other journalism, and movie, or to send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. Little did Father X know a perfect storm was brewing.